This week on Grubstakers, we're talking about billionaire, tech investor, and Republican Party investor Peter Thiel. Hear the inspiring story of the how he turned the $1 million that he got from friends and family into over $2.5 billion, and how he used that to help ICE deport immigrants and help Gawker not exist anymore. All that and more coming up on Grubstakers. That works. Because of my success in the private sector, I had the chance to run America's largest city for 12 years. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. And that's just, that's just not true. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. All right. Hey, welcome to Grubstakers, everybody. Uh, Sean McCarthy here, joined as always, back together, the full team. We got Andy Palmer, Steve Jeffries, Yogi Polywall. And, uh, you know, this week we're going to be talking about Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is... Uh, Already fucked up, Sean. I know. Already Look, ruined the podcast. <laughs> this guy is great. He's fascinating to me. He's like definitely one of the more cartoonishly uh, evil billionaires. Yeah, definitely. Um, Poorly animated cartoonish. <laughs> <laughs> they they haven't got the mouth animations correct yeah. yet. We're going to spend a week just tweeting out gifts from his Republican National Convention speech because he he's missing some muscles in his face. <laughs> it's like he had surgery to like move them muscles in his face. Move them to his heart in some like weird parobiosis thing. Right, right, right. Um, but Peter Thiel, as of April 2018, Forbes has him at a 2.5 billion oh. uh, net worth, which is actually less than I thought it would be, just for like the influence he's had and you know taking down Gawker and all that. But yeah, about 2.5 billion net worth. And uh, but before we get into it, I did just want to mention a fun little thing we did uh, this last week. We set up. Um, so there were a lot of news reports about Jeff Bezos um, because Donald Trump has been tweeting some things about. Uh, the post office getting ripped off by Amazon. And then in turn, because of that and just the general decline in the stock market, there have been some articles about how Jeff Bezos has lost $16 billion in the last week. And it's been kind of funny because you've seen a lot of like liberal people on Twitter being like, well, anything Trump is against is good. So everyone in the resistance needs to buy things from Amazon, you know, because if there's anything the Democratic Party should support, it's, you know, uh, uh, union busting and uh, making people walk 12 miles a day for $11 an hour, you know. Um, but anyways, so we thought, or I thought the idea would be funny to set up a GoFundMe to support Jeff Bezos and help him refund the $16 billion that he lost, uh, this week. Helping and, the victim, you know? Exactly. You know, and, and so, uh, I, we pitched it on Only Twitter. real victim of the Trump administration. That's right. That's right. I did make the point that no person financially has suffered more under the Trump presidency than Jeff Bezos in yep. sheer monetary terms. And I said, you know, think about the most money you've ever lost. And yeah. just imagine how scared Jeff Bezos is right now. <laughs> how vulnerable he feels to have lost $16 billion. So I set up a GoFundMe for like $70 million, uh, with the thing being that as soon as we reach our goal, we'll keep going and until we get to the full $16 billion, And we'll yeah. put that all directly in Bezos' checking account. I think that's probably the amount he lost in percentage terms of wealth is probably like... 10 times less than someone loses when they pay rent. Yeah, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> but um 
And so we uh, uh, posted on Twitter and uh, got a vociferous reaction, much of which took it seriously. (laughs) Um, But most remarkably to me was the fact that, A, the GoFundMe has not been shut down. It's still up. So if you want to donate money, uh, you can. And B, somebody actually did donate $20. (laughs) And now we're kind of ethically mired in what we do with that $20. (laughs) Because I think we should refund it to him, but he did want us to give the money to Jeff Bezos. So. And I mean, we could buy stuff off Amazon. I, I don't see, <laughs> I don't see why we wouldn't put it back in Bezos's pocket. We you know? should just mail Jeff Bezos a check for twenty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Be like, hey, we had this fundraiser, and uh, the internet decided that you're resisting the Trump agenda, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you need, uh, you need twenty dollars. My my favorite thing was the people who thought it was real and were very angrily agreeing with the sentiment oh, that we put out the there. Best. <laughs> Hilarious. It was crazy to see the myriad of Twitter people that were uh, kind of understand what we're doing and uh, agree with it, understand what we're doing but disagree with it, don't get what's going on and are mad about it. And then there was a third, fourth category, don't get what's going on, but are happy. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's like the guy who gave $20. Yes. Which, man, I would love to spend a day inside his head. Because it actually, on the description, it says in all caps, we are doing this as a labor of love. All funds will go directly to Jeff Bezos. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, you're giving $20 to literally the richest man on earth. Yeah. But, um... But yes, no, I also did enjoy the Twitter replies that were like, actually, Jeff Bezos is doing fine, but instead what we can do is buy things off Amazon and buy Amazon stock. It's like, if we want to help him resist Trump. (laughs) Oh, God. But, you know, uh, just like on a serious note, I I think uh, Trump is obviously attacking Amazon for the most petty personal reasons. But I think the federal government uh, cracking down on Amazon would be almost universally a good thing. So I just don't really have much of a problem with it. It is hilarious that a president starting a petty Twitter flame war uh, will cost the world's richest man $16 billion. (laughs) but um, yeah, I guess you want to guys get a, get into Thiel? Teal. Well, God first I got I, I got a, I got a big announcement oh, no. uh, on right. the Grub Stakers. So um, coming up in uh, in May, Pots of America is going on tour. Oh, oh no. really? Yeah, they're going to be going to uh, Radio City Music Hall in New York uh-huh. on uh, Wednesday, May twenty third. The okay. tickets are one hundred and twenty two dollars. Uh, they're going to be in Boston. Tickets Hashtag are resistance. A hundred dollars, and they're going to be. You get a you get twenty dollars off tickets if you can show your Amazon stock certificate. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to be also at Harvard, also for a uh, hundred dollars. So I have an announcement to make, which is that uh, the Grub Stakers will be doing a live show. <gasps> The day before all of these concert dates, with tickets uh, $10 less. So we're going to be performing at Radio City Music Hall for $112 a ticket. Yes. Oh. Uh, $90 a ticket in Boston, both at the Botch Center Wang Theater and the Harvard Athletic Complex. Of course. And we encourage you to, um, you know, save $10 and come see us instead. Yeah, we're, we're going to go to uh, one of their live shows and actually just copy everything they're doing. <laughs> so this is like, it's an experiment in intellectual property law where we're just going to do the Pod Save America live show for $10 less. Yeah. On that episode, it'll, it'll be a special uh, pay the Amazon stock price. Mm. Entrance yeah. fee. 
that's my favorite thing listening to liberal podcasts is like it always starts with like uh you know we're just like trying to like save the world and everything and uh you know by the way if you use a uh, promo code uh pod <laughs> on seamless you can get ten dollars off your order <laughs> do you hate doing laundry well this new app startup that uh pays uh freelancers 230 an hour <laughs> That's $2.30 an hour, and they pass the savings on to you because we're helping bust unions through the app economy. I just want everyone to know this podcast is anti-capitalism. We just don't want anyone in the capitalist system to succeed, and we want to make sure everyone knows how to benefit from being outside the system. Also, 50% off on Squarespace.com. <laughs> uh, Squarespace. And uh, please donate to our Patreon. <laughs> Uh, all right, so let's get into uh, Teal. I, I got it right this time. Um, so uh, Peter Teal is uh, uh, definitely, I think, one of the most fascinating characters uh, uh, we've I've researched for the podcast. Uh, but to give you the basic overlines of his bio, he was born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1967. His father was a chemical engineer. Klaus. Um, Klaus. And, uh, you know, no, no bad a, history whatsoever. A chemical what? engineer in Frankfurt, Germany? <laughs> There's a... Uh, you know, they have made some of the greatest breakthroughs. <laughs> German chemical engineers. I mean, what could At go the wrong? home of I.G. Farben in <laughs> Frankfurt? Yeah. I don't see what's wrong with that. I don't know what you're talking about. Did you know that uh, PayPal's uh, f- uh, startup capital was was entirely in gold teeth? <laughs> I don't get it. I don't see what that problem is. I mean, that's a form of currency. I don't see what's wrong. I, don't think... I mean, yeah, Germans pay in teeth sometimes. The original name of PayPal was Zyklon C. <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, we're so, it was such a moral leftist podcast over here. Um. <clears throat> but yeah, so born in Germany, he moves around a lot um, uh, in his Similar childhood. To Musk. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his father, uh, they moved to Cleveland when he was one. Then he goes to Nambia. Interestingly enough, his father spent some time in South Africa, uh, you know, during apartheid. So that's where some of the money came from, people. But uh, his, uh, they go to Nambia, South Africa, Cleveland, and then eventually he settles... What I'm learning is that apartheid was great for uh, innovation <laughs> in the American economy. <laughs> you got uh, Elon Musk, you got Peter Thiel, you got all of this uh, positive stuff coming out of apartheid. Nelson Mandela. Uh, Trevor Noah. Let's yeah. Let's not forget him. That's true. Came out of apartheid. Some of the best products to come out of apartheid. <laughs> He innovated The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but so he finally... How can we make this show 50% more black? <laughs> uh, he, finally, uh, he finally settles in San Mateo in 1977. Um, I believe he's uh, 10 years old or something like that. He's a young guy. Settles in San Mateo, California. He goes to high school. He's... Um, uh, in high school, he's a math prodigy, prodigy. He's a chess prodigy as well. At one point, he was a nationally ranked uh, chess player, extremely good at chess. Uh, interestingly, um, when he lost at chess, he would apparently like brush all the, oh, all really? the pieces off the board. And uh, he said, "I think it's just is, cleaning up." Yes, but he would like you know be a, a, a an asshole about it. And apparently, in this New Yorker profile I read, he explained it as like. Uh, 
Someone who's a gracious loser is just a loser or something. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fucking up the quote, but the quote is basically, if you're good at losing, then you're probably a loser. <laughs> Which, you know, again, this is like the mindset we see in a lot of these entrepreneur type people. Um, <clears throat> but so anyways. What a bitch move to be right. like, I lost at chess. The pieces are gone now. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's the end of the game. It, it literally doesn't matter how you organize the pieces anymore. For you to be this childish only means you're that much of a loser. He also did like a ceremonial first move for like some Magnus Carlsen uh, world chess match off or some match up or something. I just thought Andy might find this interesting. I'm trying to get like Andy to like Peter Thiel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first I've got to like Magnus Carlsen. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I'm a Fabio Ono Caruana boy. All right. And uh, Hikari Nakamura boy. Let's you know. Let's not divide our listenership with uh, chess politics. Yeah, Andy, come on. As someone who drinks energy drinks, uh, he while slammed I'm... two monsters before we started recording. People, no, so... I slammed one, and I'm working on the other right now. <laughs> You're getting anyway. Hikari Nakamura drank so many Red Bulls at his uh, chess tournaments that he got a sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. It was Boy. from the American Heart Association. <laughs> <laughs> that motherfucker plays chess. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, but yes. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> uh, Peter Thiel, uh, he's he's a, a prodigy in high school. He goes on to Stanford University, uh, where he gets a BA in philosophy. Um, and interestingly, in Stanford, he's kind of on a different career path um, because. So what happens in, like, um, the late 80s, early 90s is we have, like, the first of our little, uh, the first of, I guess, two big political correctness backlashes that we've seen in recent times. Um, so in 1987, um, there's something called the uh, the Rainbow Agenda at Stanford uh, University, which is um, based on uh, J- Jesse Jackson's The Rainbow Coalition. And the Rainbow Agenda is like a group of... Um, <clears throat> Uh, Stanford students who are essentially pushing for, um, you know, a more multicultural, diverse curriculum, uh, more um, uh, uh, professors uh, with tenure of color, you know, Asian uh, Americans, uh, African Americans, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, so in response to this, in 1987, uh, Peter Thiel uh, founds the is one of the co-founders of the Stanford Review, which is like a knockoff of the National Review or the the much more incendiary Dartmouth Review, which is, of course, where um, Dinesh D'Souza and Laura Ingram out at gay students at Dartmouth, uh, you know. Dartmouth? Dartmouth. Okay. <laughs> Dartmouth? I don't know. Dartmouth. Dartmouth. Um, but yes, so the, uh, uh, the Dartmouth Review was more incendiary. The Stanford Review is just your kind of like, uh, oh, political correctness is destroying America. And uh, so Peter Thiel uh, founds this kind of uh, conservative student paper, and then he graduates from Stanford Law School in 1992, um, and he later writes a book in 1995 with one of uh, the people he met at the Stanford Review, who later went on to work at PayPal with him, David Sachs, um, and they wrote this book in 95 called The Diversity Myth, and uh, he's had to apologize for uh, multiple quotes in there. But uh, I just wanted to um, kind of go over some of the, the fun things he wrote in the uh, 19... 19- hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's from a, a C-SPAN talk he gave on uh, the diversity myth. Yeah, 96. Yeah. Um, but so just a fun thing is like, uh, uh, I didn't read the book, and so I cannot tell you, 
but I believe the title of the first chapter, I believe this is the first chapter, but oh, there is a title in there called Christopher Columbus, the first multiculturalist, which I love the idea of essentially just taking the definition of multiculturalism and diversity and making it so expansive that you go, hey, that genocidal maniac, <laughs> he's a multiculturalist. And that's what they want to do to Stanford. <laughs> they want to like rape all the white professors and make them work in gold mines. Um, but yeah, so there's a, uh, there's a title called uh, Christopher Columbus, the first multiculturalist. He's had to apologize in 2016 uh, for some of the statements they made about rape in the book. Um, Just some of them? Yes, some of the statements. Um, so basically, this is from an article in The Guardian, but uh, they talk about the case. In 1991, a Stanford freshman alleged she had been raped in a dorm room while intoxicated. 17-year-old Stanford freshman. Um, and then they say, although the alleged perpetrator was clearly guilty of serving alcohol to an underage woman and taking advantage of her resulting lack of judgment there was no sexual assault understandably however the woman regretted the whole incident afterwards um and then from the guardian uh, Thiel took issue with stanford's policy on sexual assault which said that sexual assault by force or coercion including de deliberate coercion through the use of drugs or alcohol is absolutely unacceptable at Stanford University. In response, they wrote, it is ludicrous to believe that anyone who had been forcibly violated would not know it and bear physical marks. Which is, uh, you know, a pretty uh, narrow definition of rape. He wrote this in college? The, no, after he graduated from law school in 95, he writes all this. But it's all in response to this particular case of a 17-year-old girl getting raped at Stanford University and then being like, yeah. Wow, what a piece of shit. But it's like, it's so weird because like their thesis is like multiculturalism is bad and diversity as a goal is actually fake because it's not like the diversity hey, hey, of... ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. <laughs> but it's, so it's like they just tie everything into to multiculturalism. So they call it multicultural rape charge where they say like the multicultural movement is like expanding the definition of rape. So I'll just quote a little bit more here. Um, this is from your own personal journals, right? <laughs> <laughs> this is like, this is like, uh, but so, <laughs> so here's a little, a little bit more of a quote uh, that that Peter Thiel apologized for in 2016. Uh, I just like to think that he's like, I had, I know that it wasn't a rape because I have surveilled every dorm room at Stanford College <laughs> as part of my data mining process and developing this, palantirs. This is how I, yeah. yeah. So first got the idea. We have the documents, people. We know it was not a rape. There was transactions between all parties consensual. Yeah. I don't see that problem. All right, so... I am a proud gay man and a proud rape denier. <laughs> Okay, so basically, uh, the other quote about that he apologized for in 2016, but of course, because of course, they didn't actually make him. Uh, this came out after he endorsed Donald Trump after the grab him by the pussy cape tape came out. So Teal, of course, had to back uh, walk back some of these statements. But uh, so here's what he says in this book in 1995. Uh, number one, the purpose of the rape crisis movement seems as much about vilifying men as about raising quote awareness. And number two. But uh, since a multicultural rape charge may indicate nothing more than belated regret, a woman might, 
quote, realized she had been raped in the next day or even many days later. And he issued a single statement to apologize, saying, More than two decades ago, I co-wrote a book with several insensitive, crudely argued statements. As I've said before, I wish I'd never written those things. I'm sorry for it. Rape in all forms is a crime. I regret writing passages that have been taken to suggest otherwise. Um, well, he regrets it. And I mean, you know, that's that's really what counts, right, guys? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's good that he's, like, taken strides to realize the error of his ways in uh, criticizing multiculturalism. And it's not like in 2017 he had a $1.7 million settlement <laughs> with the Department of Labor for discriminating against uh, Asian job applicants at Palantir. Wow, what a piece of shit. Yeah. The thing I hate about his argument the most is it's like uh, multiculturalism and diversity are, aren't real. It's bullshit. It's kind of like uh, just because you have turmeric in your meal doesn't make you Indian. It's like, okay, I get what you're insinuating, but also turmeric's delicious. Uh, <laughs> how about you mix shit up and enjoy it and stop being a weak bitch about everything? I don't know. I'm just very <laughs> mad at how his entire thing is like, you guys notice how everything's wrong and I'm right? <laughs> Me too. Like, it's, it's like in, such a strange way. In his defense, I mean, the Palantirs really went downhill as a surveillance tool <laughs> in Middle Earth once the elves got controlled. <laughs> Stevens, of course, wraps for seeing. Uh, he's named like six of his companies after Lord of the Rings terms, including Palantir. I haven't read Lord of the Rings, so I'm not as familiar, but he's a huge Lord of the Rings and uh, Dungeons and Dragons fan. Well, and... somebody who's read half of two of the Lord of the Rings books. Listen, Andy's not our uh, resident senior token Tolkien. <laughs> Let's move on. I just like the idea of like, again, you see that with some books where it's like they start with this thesis and this thesis is multiculturalism is bad and then they just have to expand the definition of multiculturalism to here's why uh, rape is good, you know? Here's right. why a, a multiculturalism expands the definition of rape or whatever. And we're talking about the Fellowship of the Ring here? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, since a multicultural rape charge may indicate nothing more than belated regret. Like, what the fuck does that even mean? This guy graduated from stanford law school um that's a statement about uh he's like i'm sorry just schools he's like i'm sorry i'm sorry that some people took it that to mean right 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 right. so it's not actually that's what they teach you to do in law school in stanford law school it's like it's not how to like you know come up or understand like the legal definition of rape it's how to talk your way out of making a bullshit statement about rape (laughs) couple more fun things about the diversity myth uh condoleezza rice was at that time stanford's provost and uh she condemned the book calling it quote a cartoon not a description of our freshman curriculum and she called their commentary quote demagoguery pure and simple um and again this is their book that was uh arguing that essentially multiculturalism and uh diversity is destroying western civilization and it calls for, you know, an end to affirmative action, an end to political correctness, all these kind of things you're familiar with uh, if you've been online ever. Um, but a couple more just interesting quotes from the book. Uh, again, this is from The Guardian. They essentially say that uh, racism only exists because we keep talking about it, which is like... Uh, That might sound like an unfair characterization, so I'll just read their quote here. Uh, As paradoxical as it may seem, the extreme focus on racism has become the source of acrimony as multiculturalism charged whites with more 
evanescent and intangible forms of racism, such as, quote, institutional racism or, quote, unconscious racism. As a result... Or, quote, shooting a black man holding a shower head (laughs) (laughs) and claiming that it looked enough like a gun. That sounds like... That they didn't have to even issue warnings. That sounds like a very intangible form of racism. Uh, Using your own cell phone in your own backyard. Uh, Also... These Not people racist. with third degree burns are thinking about fire too much. I don't. I don't <laughs> understand what the issue is. Us people without third degree burns never think about fire, and that's the reason. <laughs> Fucking tool. The passage continues. Uh, As a result, the awareness of racism, once the main hope for ending racial division, today has become a major cause of debate and friction. So again, the uh, the awareness of racism is actually the cause of racism. Oh. Um, yeah. And then there's another weird story from this book. So basically, uh, there was in 1991 there was a member of the Harvard, uh, sorry, the Stanford Law School, who, uh, as a intended an action intended to provoke discussion of free speech, stood outside the home of a university of a Stanford University staff member and shouted, "Faggot, faggot! Hope you die of AIDS." And he was eventually forced to leave Stanford because of this. And, of course, in their book... Because um, <clears throat> the AIDS part? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, in their book, uh, The Diversity Myth, published in 1995, they defend his action and compare the reaction to his comments as... Uh, they compare it to the Salem Witch Trials, George Orwell's 1984, and the Spanish Inquisition. And then, um, this is, again, a direct quote from the book. Uh, They say his demonstration directly challenged one of the most fundamental taboos to suggest a correlation between homosexual acts and AIDS implies that one of the multiculturalist's favorite lifestyles is more prone to contracting the disease and that not all lifestyles are equally desirable. And again, this is uh, written by a closeted gay man, interestingly enough. Yeah, no, Peter Thiel would know being gay is nothing but a choice. (laughs) Man, lifestyles of the rich and famous, am I right, guys? (laughs) I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. But it's like, it's interesting because essentially this was the career path Peter Thiel was on originally. um, And his co-worker, his co-author in this book, David Sachs, has said that Peter Thiel uh, kind of wanted to be, you know, a, a, a George Will or a William F. Buckley, like a conservative commentator when he went to law school, but he also wanted to be a billionaire. So that kind of took over. So uh, Peter Thiel, he goes to Stanford, he gets this BA in philosophy, he goes to Stanford Law School, he graduates in 1992, um, and then he goes on to clerk for an appeals court judge. He's interestingly enough, he tries to get a clerkship for uh, both Supreme Court Justices Antonin Scalia and Anthony Kennedy. He's turned down for both of them. Um, Then he goes on. He works for a security lawyer for Cromwell and Sullivan in New York for seven months. Then he leaves. And then he becomes a derivatives trader at uh, Credit Suisse. Is that right? I have no idea. That's great. Oh, wow, sweet. In 1993, uh, he wasn't satisfied with the work. Uh, You know, so he's working. too derivative. (laughs) It like saying Swiss. He's working as a derivatives trader um, uh, in 93. He writes the book in 95, and then he returns to California in 96. And this is when the internet is kind of taking off, and uh, he gets inspired to eventually co-found uh, PayPal. Um, because, you know, again, um, he just kind of found a lot of these jobs boring, and uh, he really wanted to revolutionize the world or whatever other entrepreneurial things. 
But like, interestingly enough, with PayPal, kind of part of the idea um, is that they had the idea that kind of later became Bitcoin, where they wanted to to protect uh, people in other countries from oh. inflation. Yeah. yeah. Like the idea that you could create this digital currency to prevent, you know, governments from printing money and creating inflation because you have this PayPal software that it's like you put money. Yeah, it's into like fusing sort of like he wants to give the people more sort of democratic control. He thought over like the value of the currency somehow in some nebulous way. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's actually kind of back now. Like he's a big he invested big time in Bitcoin, Bitcoin yeah. in the, be, the beginning of this year. I think. I think last year, yeah. Last or, year, oh, yeah. I thought again this. They year. actually made a. Yeah, he probably did as well. When they made was, a bunch of money on Bitcoin. Interestingly yeah. enough, but, did uh, they? Well, well if they sold, I don't know if you, they sold. But if they sold, they made a bunch if, of money. If he invested when it was like twenty thousand. Um, but uh, okay, so uh, interestingly enough, so in '96 he returns to the Bay Area. And uh, he kind of notices the development of the internet, the personal computer. He's fascinated by all these things. And um, it's, uh, he meets another programmer after giving a talk at, I think, Stanford, but uh, some talk somewhere. And uh, the two of them, you know, they get, I think, smoothies, and then they come up with the idea. It's, this is a, the, from the New Yorker profile I read. I they am proud to be gay. <laughs> I am proud to be a Republican. <laughs> Yeah, it might have been juice. I don't know. <laughs> Business idea over smoothies is the most. Uh, I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. Andy, not cool. all lifestyles are equally desirable. <laughs> and that is the heart of the critique of multiculturalism. Um, but so they come up with this idea for PayPal. Um, and PayPal launches in 1999. And again, I wasn't able to find much information on it, but... Wikipedia does provide the helpful note that uh, with financial supports from friends and family, he was able to raise $1 million towards the establishment of Thiel Capital Management and embark on his venture capital career, which he was later able to uh, uh, launch PayPal with this $1 million that he raised from with the help of friends and family. Yeah. And it's just kind of funny that, again, he wrote this book in 2014 called Zero to One, which is about like what you need to be an entrepreneur. But I'm sure he doesn't say a million dollars anywhere <laughs> right, in there. Right, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, collects small donations from his friends and family here and there. <laughs> Um, yeah. You know, when uh, your father works in a German chemical engineering for the apartheid <laughs> government, uh, you're able to collect a million dollars from friends and family. You know, in doing research, he's got a uh, brother as well. Patrick, I believe, is his name. And, you know, the, I usually try and find dirt on family members and stuff. And once again, like with most billionaires, you can't find much information on his parents or his brother. And it's horseshit because... You can find me with a mohawk in high school on the internet, but you can't find any information about this billionaire's family. I mean, he, everything from his father being well, a... You don't have a billion dollars to sweep the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for some reason this... Not uh, yet. You need a planter to find this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for some reason this... I mean, this is... If you, like, with, with Peter Thiel saying, like, you know, he can't... It's not fair that he... It's hard to find out stuff about him. He made... He killed a website. He did? Right. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say, like, for some reason, uh, it's hard to find information about this billionaire who funded a lawsuit to destroy a website that published information about him. <laughs> um, you know, when Peter Thiel comes with his now husband, uh, he rips his shirt open and yells, Hulkamania. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the contract of the lawsuit. It's... Uh... He won, but he lost. And then he it. says the N-word a bunch. <laughs> 
I hope you die of AIDS. No, it's about free speech. <laughs> um, but so anyway, so they found PayPal in 99. They, um, they spent a lot of money advertising it. Uh, so they found PayPal in 99. They merged with Elon Musk's X.com in the year 2000, which we talked a bit about on the Musk episode. That's right. It was kind of like a, a similar platform. So Musk comes on board. And, and that's, just, that's just not true. Um, uh, so they launched in 99. Uh, Peter Thiel's the CEO until 2002. In 2002, they go public in February 2002. In October 2002, they sell to, to eBay um, for a few billion dollars. Um, uh, Thiel's cut of that is $55 million personally. Uh, so essentially, he's a, a millionaire as of uh, a multimillionaire as of 2002. And uh, just kind of interesting uh, thing. There was a Forbes article in 2007 called the PayPal Mafia. And, uh, you know, it's just like one of those corny business press things where they have like a bunch of former uh, PayPal founders and employees, you know, wearing like mob outfits and sitting around a card table. It's kind of a stupid picture, but we'll put it as the episode picture. Um, but anyway, so just a random fact is that six of the former... The episode picture is definitely going to be one of Peter Thiel's faces during the yeah. speech. <laughs> that guy's mouth is a scientific curiosity. His face is broken, but not in a way that's ever been broken before. You know? Yeah. Medically fascinating. Yeah. You know those Japanese like pots that they break and then put together back with gold? Imagine if you put together a face, but you didn't use gold, but you just used racist hate. <laughs> <laughs> and like platelets from 14-year-olds. Yes, yes. <laughs> but basically, of uh, the, six, of the uh, uh, former PayPal employees and founders, uh, six of them have gone on to become billionaires. That's uh, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, the LinkedIn founder, Luke uh, Nozek, Ken Howery and Keith uh, Rabios. Future episodes to come. Yes. So stay tuned for more PayPal discussion. Um, but so Peter Thiel, he cashes out with a uh, $55 million in 2002 after eBay, eBay buys PayPal. And then he goes on to fund a, uh, found a hedge fund, um, partly using that money. Um, <clears throat> it's called a Clarium Capital. And... Uh, just like a couple interesting things I've learned about Clarium Capital. Uh, uh, first off, they uh, the Wikipedia is clearly written by either Teal himself or a sycophant because it's just talking about uh, how in like 2002 to 2008, they were getting like 50% a year returns because of his like visionary investment strategy. Wow. <laughs> and it's like, wow, I'm so impressed that in the middle of an inflating housing bubble, you guys were able to make money. <laughs> and I, I'm so impressed that uh, you uh, kind of cut that off at 2008 for some reason. Um, but it's an, it's an interesting story because he almost became like a hedge fund billionaire, but then he just like made a bunch of moronic bets as the entire market collapsed. And uh, so uh, Clarium Capital peaked with uh, $8 billion in assets under management in 2008. And then as of 2011, it only had 300 to 400 million assets under management. So it was basically just a massive collapse because they started making idiotic bets and then everybody pulled their money out. According to um, a website that uh, is no longer active uh, that we might have mentioned earlier, uh, Clarium lost 90% of its assets since its peak. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Wow. Yeah. There, there are these 90%. great Gawker headlines where it's like, 
Facebook's a uh, Facebook billionaire's big dumb failure, and then uh, <laughs> Facebook backer Peter Thiel still losing everyone's money, and then wow. uh, Facebook backer wishes women couldn't vote. We'll get into that one later. Yeah, we'll get a bunch of meanies. Yeah, um, but so interesting. They're bullies, thing. and they deserve to be taken. <laughs> uh, interesting thing: if you go to Clarium's webpage, which I did earlier. Uh, it just gives you a login screen for Clarium employees, but the landing page has three Peter Thiel quotes, and it rotates between them. What? <laughs> I know. And so if I can just uh, uh, read a couple, yes, please, because please. They're, they're fascinatingly opaque. Huh? So, so here's a, a, one of the three quotes is, uh, the macro investor more closely resembles a detective who must piece together indirect clues that point to nocturnal events in faraway places. Peter Thiel. And then I the, am proud to be gay. <laughs> I am proud to be a Republican. That one's not on there. Um, Yet. Then there's the other one. Uh, during the last quarter century, the world has seen more asset booms or bubbles than all previous times put together, which is nonsense. <laughs> uh, and then the last one... The last one I will confess to In the not era even... of global capitalism, there has been more global capitalism than any other era before the era of global capitalism. <laughs> uh, so the last of the three quotes I will confess to not even understanding without like uh, having to look up the references to Greek mythology. <laughs> the last of the three quotes is, Clarium's mission is to find another way, the straight and narrow path between the Scalia... Scalia? Skilla, uh, it's it's move a, on, John. Yeah, of outdated wisdom and the charbadus of nihilistic cleverness, and apparently these are both references to Greek mythology. It's a it's a real call to action. Yeah, <laughs> but I love like it's just like these kind of like self indulgence. Okay, so a charbadus uh, is a sea monster, and a Scalia a. Uh, Skyia is monster? a monster that lives on one side of a narrow channel of water from uh, uh, Greek mythology. I am incredibly I disappointed are... that someone who plays as much Magic the Gathering as Sean has to look this up when clearly <laughs> on his computer the pictures of the monsters that are coming up on Google while he looks this up look like they're straight off of a magic card. <laughs> See, he was more of a Dungeons & Dragons kid, and yeah. there's a notorious disconnect between Dungeons & Dragons and Magic the Gathering. It's like East Coast versus West exactly. Coast. Jay-Z okay. versus Nas. So for the students of Greek mythology that cringed, apparently these two monsters are like two sea monsters on opposite sides of a channel in Greek mythology. So this quote essentially means that his, his hedge fund's mission is to find a straight and narrow path between these two sea monsters of outdated wisdom and nihilistic cleverness. Diversity and multiculturalism. <laughs> right. But it's just funny. Like, And if you want more of that, and you if, can buy his book Zero to One. And if you make it across that channel, you will you'll lose, lose 90% billion of your dollars. <laughs> <laughs> it's just another, yeah. like... Apparently, like, a lot of people were pulling money out of the funds because they said all the employees at this hedge fund were members of the cult of Peter Thiel. <laughs> and I just cannot imagine why a company with a landing page that features three self-indulgent Peter Thiel quotes would uh, become cult members. You know what's better than one self-indulgent <laughs> Peter Thiel quote? Three self-indulgent Peter Thiel quotes. Um, but yes, yeah, so the, the hedge fund's still around, but uh, they just destroyed themselves in the 2008 financial crisis. But he did make a good bet. Uh, 
In uh, 2004, he invests uh, half a million dollars in Facebook, which, again, we talked about a bit on the Mark Zuckerberg uh, episode. Yeah, in, in Social Network, <laughs> clearly the guy, I mentioned this before, but the guy who played Peter Thiel did not study Peter Thiel because what he was going for was clearly like uh, Glenn Greenwald doing a business deal <laughs> and not malfunctioning robot <laughs> with sparks coming out of its neck. Uh, interestingly, from the New Yorker profile, Peter Thiel remarks that the actor who played him looked too old. So, uh, <laughs> interesting critique for the guy who's into parabiosis. <laughs> oh, by the way, if uh, if Yogi doesn't talk much on this episode, it's because he's the youngest one of us, and we're actually all draining his blood in order <laughs> to right. give us more energy. Right. <laughs> I've got four IVs in my arms, <laughs> and they're directly going into all of their penises. <laughs> Yeah, I had to like increase my blood flow uh, when I didn't know those two characters from Greek mythology. <laughs> like, clearly, I'm not ready. When we said Andy was into uh, Andy was chugging Monster, we really meant my blood. That's yeah. really what he's been drinking today. Um, so he invests in. Wait, Facebook. wait, let's go into the parabiosis thing for a second. Yeah, so yeah. parabiosis is basically this kind of um, uh, from everything I've read about. It sounds like snake oil. But it's this idea that you... Uh, what? Injecting young people's blood to live forever is is kind of a scam? <laughs> it's this idea that, yes, as Andy said, that you inject blood from younger people um, to uh, older people, and then that will make you healthier and live longer and stuff. And uh, Peter Thiel has invested... Um, I think a million. I don't know the exact number into this company. Too much money. Let's yes. just say that <laughs> a lot of money. More than yeah. no dollars. Right into into a company called Ambrosia, which studies this parabiosis and um, <clears throat> and parabiosis. Interestingly enough, the term goes back. It refers to experiments first conducted in. Uh, 1864 by a physiologist named Paul Burt. Mall cop. <laughs> the original mall cop. Uh, but basically, he cut the skin off of two mice and then sewed them together. And then when he healed, they healed, their blood vessels combined enough so that they essentially shared the same circulatory system. You know, we, system. Used, we used to build things in this country. <laughs> We used to tie mice We used to together. make things. <laughs> um, but yes, this is, uh, sorry, I quoted that from sciencebasedmagazine.org, which uh, has an article called Parabiosis, the Next Snake Oil. <laughs> and uh, I just if love America pursued its goals of the future, we could be sewing five mice together today, maybe even six <laughs> mice but yeah, like if um, if you study if you do research on Peter Thiel, you find out he's obsessed with not dying, and uh, you know, and also the movie The Human Centipede. We're not sure why, <laughs> but yes, he 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 injects young people blood. He's ha he's signed up to be cryogenically frozen. He disappointingly believes he will only live to be 120 years old. Aww. Um, you know, he's obsessed with uh, beating death. And like a lot of his uh, 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 venture capital or um, foundational things are based on uh, trying to uh, stop the human aging process because the guy wants to live forever. Um, but yeah, so he's interested in parabiosis and um, uh, he invests in Facebook, as we mentioned in 2004. He puts about a half million in. He sells almost all of that. Later, he makes close to a billion dollars on this investment. Um, <clears throat> uh, 
so his capital fund bombs and uh that also i wanted to talk a bit about palantir 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 uh so palantir is another startup i think he founds this in 2004 yeah he founded it uh with another member of uh paypal out Harp, i believe <laughs> <laughs> Legolos. Leg- yeah. <laughs> um, I think. Yeah, it, I'm sure. An, it was I'm an sure Oldor startup. Yeah, um, in the Second Age. In his eyes, like he's Legolas, and anyone working with him is the dwarf that he's gotten. To- <laughs> so yeah, uh, I, I never thought I'd die fighting side by side with a radical libertarian. <laughs> <laughs> what about fighting side by side with a friend? <laughs> no. <laughs> So yeah, Palantir was started in uh, 2004, and uh, originally was basically the idea was to take algorithms uh, that they were using at PayPal that they'd use to detect fraud by looking for um, using kind of massive data mining and looking for uh, irregularities irregularities, and then using that to detect fraud. And they had a pretty early on, they had not, I guess, too early on, uh, but one of their one of their big successes um, in detecting fraud was they actually their software helped to catch bernie madoff Ooh. um you know that uh impossible to catch fraud that went undetected right, right. for 22 <laughs> decades before finally being exposed in the financial <laughs> crisis the uh and so basically what palantir does um is for one thing it's not necessarily well known they go to great lengths to hide everything they do but they're they radical transparency yeah yeah they they use big data mm-hmm. and then they will essentially connect big data with just human analysts so it's a little bit of just kind of what most companies do but apparently they seem to do it so well or at least they're able to market themselves so well that their clients include the CIA, the Department of Homeland Security, the NSA, the FBI, the CDC, the Marine Corps, the Air Force, Special Operations Command, West Point for some reason, uh, the Joint Improvised Threat Defeat Organization and Allies, the Recovery, Accountability, and Transparency Board, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Uh, also under DHS, they work for ICE. And I'll get to that in a minute. Um, Just a quick thing. Uh, Andy mentioned the CIA. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I believe one of their um, primary early backers was the CIA's Venture Capital Fund, <laughs> which I didn't yeah. know existed before yesterday. In yeah. yeah, look it up. But, um, but you know, the CIA Venture Capital Fund is one of the best venture capital funds because they get that pure CIA cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> they get the real uncut stuff. <laughs> Um, but yeah, you were talking to... Sean, this isn't the 80s. <laughs> they get pure Afghan heroin. <laughs> but you can't you can't trade for 48 hours straight on heroin. Their business addresses <laughs> the 80s, Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Palantir has like, it's, they basically use all of this, um, all of these things for like really weird applications. Like in Afghanistan... Uh, they make it so that the Marines can upload DNA samples from remote locations and then run that against DNA databases and find matches, uh, which is kind of creepy. It's, they've had some success in predicting where IEDs are, uh, using their data mining and another thing that they've done. So they're like 23 and me, but for terrorists or terrorism, basically it's like, Hey, if you find this strand of DNA in this area, there's probably a bomb somewhere hidden. Um, you know, I'm not going to say it's that direct, but I'm also not going to say it's not that direct. <laughs> cool. Got yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, so one thing they did also is they started a philanthropic 
uh, program with New Orleans where they decided to use their technology. By the way, Palantir has two uh, different subsets. They have Palantir Gotham and Palantir Metropolis. Uh, Palantir Gotham is their uh, government branch and Palantir Metropolis is their business branch. And in case you wanted to know how much of an unsufferable nerd Peter Thiel is, and the name Palantir wasn't a dead giveaway. So basically, they started in 2012 partnering with New Orleans uh, to give the police kind of access to Palantir technology and oh work God. on what's known as predictive policing. What could go wrong? Yeah. Uh, you know the New, or- New Orleans police who uh, murdered several people in the aftermath of Katrina and then covered it up. <laughs> well, the thing about predictive policing is uh, that I kind of looked into is that what it does is it takes, you know, reports from police and uh, uses that to predict, you know, where crimes are going to be committed. And Palantir also incorporates uh, social media information, which where is... Where crimes are going to be committed. Whenever anyone's holding a cell phone or a shower bed, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they look for locations with those things. Yeah. Uh, they incorporate social media histories, which, you know, Peter Thiel's a major backer of Facebook probably has access to uh, some of that stuff more than uh, the average person. I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg would never unethically share user data (laughs) with someone who sits on the board of Facebook. (laughs) And so basically with uh, predictive policing, it's not really been proven, even though they claim to have reduced the murders in New Orleans. You obviously can't just make that claim, uh, but they do anyway. Uh, But predictive policing, there have been academic studies that have shown that it doesn't predict where crime's going to be, just where cops have already reported crimes. So if cops are basically doing racial like profiling, right, right, right. the crime statistics are going to say that there's a lot of crime in this place where police are racial oh profiling. God. Right. And then they're just going to keep racial profiling, even though like, for instance, it, the, uh, one of the studies tested it out with drug crimes. And what they found is that uh, predictive policing will say that there's a lot of drug crime in this one area because that's where the police do all the like oh, drug arrests, wow. and then public Isn't health data. Great? Public health data that's separate says no. There's drug abuse all over, you right? Know, <laughs> the city. It's just that the police are yeah, racist. That's where the police go. Yeah. So Jesus. it's like a technological kind of confirmation bias is what we're really building. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, we we've, we've noticed that you think that people here are doing drugs, and because you think that. We think so, too. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And here's the kicker is that uh, the city council was not made aware of this. <laughs> because, what? Yeah, the, uh, because the Palantir pitched it as a ph- philanthropic thing. Basically, they were doing it pro oh, bono right, right. and then using it to advertise to other police departments oh. their, quote, success in New Orleans. See, we're helping out these black cops, so <laughs> yeah. why don't you check us out? So The Verge reported on it, and they called a bunch of city council members, and the council members were like, wait, what? what's happening? And uh, apparently the deal was facilitated uh, by a paid spokesman of Palantir who uh, happens to be James Carville, the uh, oh the the, the political the stupid the pundit, yeah. yeah yeah the oh, political God. guy for Bill Clinton uh. is a paid advisor of Palantir. Uh, Palantir also works with uh, the worked with the NYPD, and that only became public when the NYPD decided to stop using Palantir, but wanted the data transferred to a different format. 
and Palantir refused to, so the NYPD sued them, and that's how the public oh found out God. about it. it should, can I just go back to something, though? I just yeah. cannot believe that a man who in 2009 wrote, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible, would freeze out an elected city council. <laughs> just love that he has done so many of these bullshit backdoor deals but on top of that it was like no no it's philanthropic it's like for the people i'm only yeah exposing your privacy because i think it's good for you like what are you what yeah it's fucking insane he um well interesting thing about palantir is um it was as i mentioned originally kind of kept afloat by the cia venture capital fund but today it's actually extremely profitable it's uh, valued at about 20 billion dollars wow. and he owns a 10 percent stake in it so that's actually primarily uh one of the biggest sources of his 2.5 billion net worth is his 10 percent stake in palantir and a lot of that money um they've he they've tried to venture into uh business as well using like you know predicting fraud like they worked for home depot after home depot had a big uh uh database breach and then home depot was like yeah this is this is fucking useless and cut their contract like so they're kind of failing in the business in terms of like business customers but they've got all these government contracts including um they're a tool for ice immigration and customs enforcement um you know who may or may not be in the news for destroying families and uh, busting workplaces. It's almost like Look. an awareness of racism causes racism. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. <laughs> Steven's exploding the diversity myth. <laughs> Other central premise is that real diversity is diversity of ideas. You know, white people who think different things. <laughs> yeah, so they got, a, they got a $41 million contract uh, to build and maintain uh, something called ICM, Investigative Case Management. Oh, good. Um, this is from uh, an Intercept article from March 2017. Um, they got documents detailing it. And they also found that this Palantir thing is, quote, mission critical to ICE, uh, meaning that ICE wouldn't be able to function without this Palantir program. So they're essential to this, like, you know, modern Gestapo deportation machine. Yeah. And they uh, basically what they do is they provide ICE with uh, information such as a subject schooling, family relationships, employment information, phone records, immigration history, uh, foreign exchange program status, personal connections, biometric traits, which if if that's not creepy um, as hell, like uh, then there's criminal records and home and work addresses. And so... You know, it's really important. You just need a proper degree of data management to find the people who have been living here 30 years without committing any crimes. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's basically building the technological infrastructure for systematic ethnic cleansing. Cool. Uh, and that's where he's, you know, getting a good num- good amount of his money. Um, yeah, you were also talking about, uh, Andy, before we started, you mentioned kind of the irony of like this libertarian capitalist who's like really making most of his money off this fat government contract to help the police state yeah. and well, the military state. Yeah, he had this quote um, from his his RNC speech, uh, which is uh, where the gay Republican quote uh, has come from, which is this. Our nuclear bases still use floppy disks. Our newest fighter jets can't even fly in the rain. And it would be kind to say the government software works poorly because much of the time it doesn't even work at all. Uh, That is a a staggering decline 
for the country that completed the Manhattan Project. We don't accept such incompetence in Silicon Valley, and we must not accept it from our government. Now, that's coming from a guy, and it's interesting that he mentions the Manhattan Project. And his examples of failures, like the F-15 that doesn't work in the rain, is made by a private corporation, Lockheed Martin, uh, where it's basically just this money hole where the government keeps throwing billions and billions into this fucked up jet fighter that doesn't work. And what he he's killed people who don't even who don't want our system. Yes. And he at the same time, he's saying like the solution is more privatization. And his example of a successive government was the Manhattan Project, which was a government project. Right. Yes. And so it's he's it, it, I mean, yeah, he's since involved evolved. Well, his libertarian views to um in, say the government should fund science research. I, I mean, he is a, he's a, he's a, he's a Republican now. He's not yeah. in the Libertarian Party. Yeah. Oh, interesting. The the other part of that quote, though, is he says, you know, government software doesn't work at all. It's like, hmm, who's providing that government <laughs> software? Yeah. Yeah. Deal? I just want like, someone in the silo to accidentally load up the Oregon Trail instead of. <laughs> And they get so distracted they don't like they're not able to do a retaliatory wait, wait, strike. Wait, wait, wait. They're not able to wipe Grilling out pace? half the planet. Yeah. Ah <laughs> oh, shit, dysentery again. <laughs> so also um ICE is focusing on immigrants, but apparently ICM uh funding documents made it clear that the tool can also be aimed at US citizens. Cool. And uh the document states US citizens are still subject to criminal prosecution and are thus part of ICM. Um ICM also helps the police uh it helps provide the police with information to uh help police engage in criminal and civil asset forfeiture. And there's also a program called uh there was a law enforcement database called Black Asphalt that was linked with um, this Palantir thing that was used by Iowa and Kansas, and they had to cancel it because of concerns that it, quote, uh, might not be a legal law enforcement tool, <laughs> according it's, to the Washington Post. It's really not at all terrifying that a major Trump backer has a massive database on all of us and has written, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy <laughs> are compatible. <clears throat> oh, boy. Um and then I also want to, uh, moving on from Palantir, I also want to circle back to the RNC speech and point out how during this speech, Peter Thiel uh, uses an age-old trick of someone uh, giving a performance at a local venue, such as, uh, it's great to be here in Cleveland, and then repeatedly fails to get the applause that is almost guaranteed. Right. He does this four times in the speech. Right here in Cleveland. Wait. <laughs> right here in Cleveland. Light applause. That's a light applause. My dad studied engineering at Case Western Reserve University at just IG down Farben. the road from where we are now. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Neil Armstrong from right here in Ohio. <laughs> For me, that is Cleveland and the bright future it promised. <laughs> uh, that's pretty wonderful. Um, yeah. 
Uh, I guess we can also mention, so we've talked about his, uh, or sorry, anything else on Pelantir, or we can also talk about the Seasteading Institutes and other Let's talk facet. about Gawker. Let's get to the meat of oh, the God, today. Yeah, All right, yeah. There's a Gawker lot before we guy. do Seasteading. All right, so the Gawker lawsuit. Um, well, so I only know the general overview. I know some more details. Go for it, go for so, it. So uh, Gawker is a rag. I think uh, it was a rag is, is a good way to put it. And they were publishing articles about Peter Thiel. Now, one of the big ones that people point to as the reason why Peter Thiel hated Gawker is the article uh, titled, Peter Thiel is totally gay, people. Which, by the way, grabbing headline. Very grabbing. Now, Owen Thomas, the guy that wrote this, uh, admits he he didn't really out Peter Thiel. At the time, it wasn't that he wasn't known as a gay person, but in small circles it was known. And so... This article is just uh, Owen Thomas just being like, hey, this guy that's kind of a shitty business person is also a homosexual. However, at the end of this article, he does say, uh, um, I think it explains a lot. Uh, All right, so he's talking about how many venture uh, VCs are not the traditional straight white dude, basically, and how Silicon Valley is narrow-minded in this thought, right? And the last paragraph of this article is what I think really pissed Peter Thiel, a guy that was born in Germany, off. He goes, I think it explains a lot about Thiel. His disdain for convention, his quest to overturn established rules, like the immigrant Jews who created Hollywood. And that's a hyperlink to this book. Uh... An empire of their own, how the Jews invented Hollywood, <laughs> which is uh, on the Amazon link, also links to, to Mein Kampf, the rise of the Inquisition, and secret Jews of, of Hollywood. So, I do love that that's like, uh, I mean, I haven't read it, but I imagine it's kind of a positive book, right. yes. but there's also just like all these white nationalists yeah, right, who are right, like, right. well, we have to get the deep dive on Hollywood. Yeah. And- <laughs> I mean, I think that book is just like about the history of Hollywood and how Jewish uh, people came to the U.S. and created this amazing industry, but it is linked to so much white suppressed stuff <laughs> that I think that the German Peter Thiel was so enraged by this. He was like, fuck these people. Now, Gawker also wrote a whole bunch of other stuff, one of them being My about- grandfather didn't take the Zeitgeist. Cyclone B contract for this. Hey, hey, ho, ho. Western culture's got to go. So Gawker published. That was one of the big early ones. It it was that. And then also all of their uh, reporting on Clarion. Yes. As I mentioned earlier, a Facebook billionaire's big dumb failure. Yeah, right. Uh, Facebook backer Peter Thiel still losing everyone's money. (laughs) And Facebook backer wishes women couldn't vote. And they, they basically Gawker called out all of his bullshit. Uh, you know, the thing Sean mentioned, seasteading, the movement to establish sovereign communities on permanent ocean vessels for the purpose of developing legal systems unencumbered by taxes or any other kind of traditional government policies. Basic supervillain stuff. Me likey the oppressive totalitarianism. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, it's like, oh, are you tired of an oppressive government? Well, what about a corporate state? <laughs> you know, going to work... What if they controlled everything about your life? Right, right. Um, yeah, well, so interesting if we want to talk about seasteading for a second. Yes, yeah, and I'll content, condense this. But um, the Seasteading Institute is a, uh, a, a nonprofit that has uh, been set up originally uh, co-founded by Milton Friedman's grandson, um, who is a Google engineer and has uh, made money playing poker as well. Um, but the Seasteading Institute uh, wants to set up, as we mentioned, these kind of uh, uh, 
sea colonies in international waters so that they can experiment with, you know, radical city-state. Yes. Basically a market in children, among other things, um, in international waters. And Peter Thiel has given at least $1.25 million to the Seasteading Institute. Um, but just uh, uh, one random... A couple of interesting things about uh, Patry Friedman, Milton Friedman's grandson. Um, basically, he's kind of he's been described as a free love libertarian by the um, uh, New Yorker profile on Peter Thiel, and I just love this quote. Um, he wrote in a blog post about polyamory. Uh, sorry, let me. Oh yes. So uh, Milton Friedman's grandson writes in this blog post about polyamory, and he compares it to the competitive government model. <laughs> so he goes, quote, polyamory slash competitive government parallel. More choice slash competition yields more challenge, change, growth. Whatever lasts is tougher. And this is the idea that by having multiple sexual partners, it's kind of like having multiple governments where the best one prevails. <laughs> And, uh, you Where know, one government just keeps bugging other governments and <laughs> saying, like, listen, I, I, I know I know I'm in a relationship, but it's the benefit for you is no strings uh, intergovernmental. <laughs> but you know what? It's checks and balances. Yeah. <laughs> this man does not represent the poly community. <laughs> I think if we have learned one thing, it's that. Uh, well, anyways. I don't want to shit on the polys. Uh, so, uh, the Gawker yeah, case. Yeah, they'll fuck you. <laughs> uh, Hulk, and your girlfriend. Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania, Terry Bolio is in a lawsuit with uh, Gawker uh, because they published two minutes of this 30-minute sex tape. And boy, the fact that there's 28 other minutes that we don't get to see of Hulkamania just going to town on his friend's wife. Um, it's Bubba that. the Lunch Love Sponge. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so he originally is not suing for the amount of money that it ends up being. Originally, it's like for a copyright infringement because of like they use uh, basically at first Hulk Hogan was just trying to get his, and then once the trial and it had nothing was, to do with them sharing a video where Hulk Hogan says the n word a whole bunch. <laughs> um, the, the case boils down to. Uh, Terry Bollea saying that them releasing this hurt me, and so he really received sixty million in emotional damage, and like another fifty million for, or another sixty million for uh, the lo lawyer fees, basically. So one hundred twenty million is awarded to Hulkamania, uh, money he did not need, <laughs> and money that is uh, genuinely uh, wasted on him. Yogi, isn't the man Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hulkamania the phenomenon? I think so. You're right. It's a real Frankenstein's monster situation. What are you gonna do? I just look at them same. Um, but later on, it's revealed that Peter Thiel put in ten million of his own money in this court case nice. to kill Gawker. Basically, good return on investment. This is what made him such a successful hedge fund manager. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it is cheaper than the guy who bought out. Uh, what was it? Uh, There's that other billionaire who bought out Gothamist oh, really? and shut it down. Whereas Peter Thiel didn't have oh, to pay yeah. full price for. We'll Gawker. do another episode yeah. of that guy. What an asshole! So. Yeah. Now it's been reported that Peter Thiel wants to buy like the skeleton of Gawker because to this date the like links to some of the articles we're talking about are still up. But since Gawker is basically bankrupt, he now wants to buy to completely erase it. Yeah, and this goes back to what I was saying about the families not being anywhere on the internet. It's like, oh, we have a megalomaniac billionaire with uh, values and morals that are questionable deciding what gets to be published about himself. 
this will only end in turmoil, and it leads me to the Theo Fellowship, which is his incubator of uh, graduates. Encouraging kids to drop out of college and, and become entrepreneurs. Right, and give them 100 grand to pursue ideas. And the thing is terrible. Because, you know, countries, countries that have more entrepreneurs are typically associated with uh, third world conditions <laughs> where it's more competitive and the, the strong rise to the top. That's right, that's right. Yeah. The U.S. is right, actually right down there with... Uh, other shithole countries like Norway and Sweden in terms of how few entrepreneurs it has. Um, but yes, uh, I do want to, I know we're at an hour now, I do want to get to this very fun article he wrote in 2009 um, uh, where uh, most of the criticism that comes from this article is the passage where he says that women voting is a bad thing. Um, but just like, so essentially he writes this article in 2009 and again, like, you know, he, he, he apologizes for his diversity myth book by saying this was two decades ago, right. and then he writes this shit in 2009. <laughs> wow. And it's for I am proud to be gay. <laughs> I am proud to be a Republican. All right. Well, so he writes this article in 2009 um, for the Cato Institute, or for CatoUnbound.org, um, and basically it's called The Education of a Libertarian. And he says, I basically believe the same things I believe in high school when he got into Ayn Rand and, st- Ayn Rand and stuff, but he says, uh, I must confess, over the last two decades, I have changed radically on the question of how to achieve these goals. More importantly, I no, no, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are ca- compatible. He goes on, the higher one's IQ, the more pessimistic one becomes about free market politics. Capitalism is simply not that popular with the crowd. Um, <laughs> and then he ta- has the infamous uh, uh, passage about the 1920s, which I find so funny. He goes, the 1920s were the last decade in American history during which one could be genuinely optimistic about politics. The 1920s, of course, were the inflation of a massive credit bubble driven on pure speculation under which people were uh, uh, lending money to invest in a stock market they would assume would never go down and was you know, probably the greatest market failure in uh, Western capitalism's history. But that's you know, the Let's last decade. Let's put a decade. pin on that for the end of the episode, by the way. <laughs> uh, but that's uh, you know, the last uh, time. We could be optimistic. And he goes, uh, since 1920, the vast increase in welfare beneficiaries and the extension of the franchise to women, two constituencies that are notoriously tough for libertarians, have rendered the notion of capitalist democracy into an oxymoron. Um, And, uh, of course, they have to put an editor's note at the end of this because, uh, for some reason, this article got a lot of pushback. And uh, he he, uh, clarifies his thoughts by saying it would be absurd I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. (laughs) He uh, clarifies his thoughts by saying it would be absurd to suggest that women's votes will be taken away or that this would solve the political problems that vex us. Well, I don't think any class of people should be disenfranchised. I have little hope that voting will make things better. And his entire thesis in this article is that we need to do, um, you know, seasteading and space exploration and web technologies. His idea is essentially like the great Ayn Rand uh, hero individual will figure out how to uh, beat democracy by inventing something that makes socialism irrelevant, Uh, which explains maybe why he was a big investor in Bitcoin. By fucking your married friend and saying that that's important (laughs) to... Um, for true libertarianism and then dying sad and alone. <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, I think uh, uh, another interesting thing, he gave a series of lectures, uh, and then those became a book called Zero to One that he published in 2014, which is just kind of like the usual half-baked investor wisdom. Um, But interesting confession from that book is he says, four of the founders of PayPal had built bombs as children, which he later specified he meant that four of the PayPal founders were making bombs in high school. Uh, he refused to identify which four they were. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it turns out the PayPal mafia has a little bit in common with the uh, trench coat mafia. <laughs> uh, and he also has, like... Uh, actually, the trench coat mafia was... Uh, Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris were not members, They were, uh, but they liked to be associated with them. They, they just wore trench coats on the day of Columbine to hide their weapons, like in The Matrix. Um, and uh, it also has just a bunch of like the usual half-baked kind of like business school, we think it's deep bullshit, where he says, uh, we never invest in entrepreneurs who turn up for the interview in a suit, you know? Right. Yeah. That's like, uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, he's, what uh, should they be wearing? I don't know. Peter Stained Steel. t-shirt. Well, when he like, gets a call that they're on their way, he goes, what are you wearing? <laughs> just like cum stains and... But that's not because he's a Republican. That's because he's a homosexual. He yeah. wants to make sure he's the most... I am proud to be gay. <laughs> I am proud to be a Republican. Oh, man. Um, all right. Well, anything else on Peter Thiel before we get into garbage time? Uh, I, oh, I did want to say... I if you didn't call it garbage time, but uh, <laughs> other than that, I think, I think we're doing all right. <laughs> Uh, I do like the idea of Peter Thiel immortality, though, because it's like, again, he's obsessed with immortality, and his idea of immortality is essentially like capitalists live forever and workers never retire. Right. You know? Um, But I also think that, you know, he's really a guy who would give Alex Jones an aneurysm because not only does he sit on the uh, steering committee of the Bilderberg Group, but he's obsessed with creating liquid computers. (laughs) Uh, you can tell what I pre-wrote, and I just want to get into a microphone. <laughs> Liquid computers? What is it? Like? Uh, so it's this idea that like molecular systems that will uh, stop a- uh, aging and will uh, oh. identify diseases in cells. Gotcha. and then um, Basically, bioengineered DNA almost. Huh? Right, yes. Um, yeah, it's better than saying liquid computers. <laughs> I just like the idea of liquid computers. A smoothie computer that you can have with your friend before a business meeting. Oh, man. Uh, anything else to get to? Uh, I do have a funny story from Harvard. Go for it. Yeah, okay. So uh, last weekend I went to Harvard uh, with my girlfriend, and she saw uh, Malia Obama leaving the campus of Harvard. Um, and uh, my girlfriend asked Malia for a picture. Malia said, sorry, I can't, you know, because she's gotten in some trouble about this. But uh, I did think it was rude that Malia wouldn't even smoke the joint I offered her. <laughs> <laughs> People, I pre-write some stuff for the podcast, okay? You saw Malia Obama in the good. flesh? Yeah, I saw she her. hot? Yeah, she's tall. She's walking with a white dude. I don't want to spread any rumors here. Might have been her boyfriend, might just be a friend. Sean, mm-hmm. can I just say, like, we should have a rule, a minimum of three open mics before you <laughs> <laughs> take a bit on the podcast? <laughs> I just write these things, and I have no other place to put them. You could workshop them, Sean. I mean, you could... <laughs> You want to hear some Warren Buffett stuff? <laughs> How many mics have you taken it to? Yeah, have, has it been workshopped? Have you ran at least once? Uh, no, I haven't. This is this is fresh. All right, people. moving on. <laughs> uh, the uh, best brokers app. Oh yeah. Uh, so uh, we've uh, we're we, in the middle of a market crash. Yeah, we 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 started best brokers. If you've been uh, holding cash, <laughs> you've been beating all of us. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, we all we all got on best brokers. Uh, our names are Grubstakers Andy, Grubstakers Yogi, Grubstakers Sean, and Grubstakers Steve. And so we all started investing that day that we dropped uh, the podcast and announced it. And so far, our all-time leaderboard uh, first is Grubstakers Steve, uh, followed Boo. by Grubstakers Andy, then Yogi. And then Sean. Yeah, for some reason, uh, uh, financial investment stocks take a bit of a hit when Trump declares a trade war. <laughs> yeah, for some was... reason, these uh, corporations founded on the basis of globalization <laughs> do not do well when globalization gets rolled, rolled back. And we're all in the red. Steve is ahead of us because he waited one week to actually start investing. And so we invested right right before a market crash. Uh, I'm a very cautious investor. Uh, Also, shout out to uh, Andy Miller, who's also playing with us under the name Rich Pussy. Um, Though he's, he's He's at the top for today, but he's at the bottom for all time. Um, also, if you're if you're playing this game and you friended us, uh, we can't see friends. So just like shoot one of us a, a message, call me uh, uh, call me a dipshit, and I'll friend you. Um, the app is like it's a German app. Uh, it's I don't because it when you look up stocks, there's a whole bunch of yeah, ones from of, the German yeah. uh, equivalent of the stock oh, market. Interesting. The, oh yeah, Lang and Schwartz. That's those are totally German names. So yeah, and all the all the prices are, are in euros, and everything reason. is in euros. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys, what if what if Warren Buffett he like he hired a woke PR firm to like try and defend his actions? So they'll be like, uh, no, he he didn't disown his granddaughter because she was in a movie criticizing income inequality. He disowned her because she's a white lady wearing dreadlocks, and he doesn't believe in cultural appropriation. Or, uh, or yes, he forecloses on mobile homes at three times the national rate, but he was just so angry that they voted for Trump. I am proud to be gay. <laughs> I am proud to be a Republican. <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. I'll stop writing. My uh, dad that's studied the engineering away. at Case Western Reserve University, just down the road from where we are now. Wait. That last part is what happens after your jokes. <laughs> Uh, also, a special shout out to uh, Lacroix Philosophy on Twitter. Send us a nice message, letting us know. Yeah, that, lots of uh, lots of good feedback. Uh, thanks to all our listeners, uh, and all our comrades, our top three SoundCloud listeners: Tom Jamin, Michael Paradise, and Noah Asheroff. Yeah. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, Talia Lavin for uh, promoting us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you, everybody. Andy's DMs are always open. Give them all <laughs> your feedback. He's uh, he's here for it. Add us on all of the social media nonsense. We got more fun stuff coming. Listen, if you want to shit on Sean, uh, my, my DMs are open. <laughs> I won't tell Sean, by which I mean I will tell Sean if I <laughs> think it will hurt him. Um, so send your best stuff. Yeah. Make sure to say you like all the written jokes I've been doing. <laughs> That that Warren Puffett woke PR. How are they that gonna, was just so good and so naturally God. integrated into the How are the they going to know about those jokes if they get cut out from the episode? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, That's everything? Yeah. Anything else? No. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. Good night. Thanks. Bye.
train, say your prayers, eat your vitamins, be true to yourself, true to your country, be a real American. Whew.